If you have your Bible here this morning, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6 today. Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we are coming kind of to the end of this old mini series that I've been doing called Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World. So far this year, we've looked at political chaos, cultural chaos, family chaos, financial chaos, and now today I want to talk to you about spiritual chaos, standing strong in spiritual chaos. Recently, there was breaking news that uh, parents in the Greensboro, North Carolina area are fighting back against a new school club that is encouraging students to join. It's called the After School Satan Club. And it is sponsored by the Satanic Temple. When I first saw this story, I thought it was a hoax. (laughs) But I checked and double-checked, and it's true. The first meeting was to be held at Joyner Elementary in Greensboro, and it would be the first of its kind in a North Carolina public school. This isn't California. This isn't New York. This isn't Oregon or Washington State. This is North Carolina, folks. Just a couple hours down the road. Rumblings began when students were receiving flyers about the club, which, of course, inevitably made their way into the hands of parents. The flyer stated that kids who participated in the club would be taught, quote, critical thinking skills, scientific rationalism, and creative expression. As controversy began to swirl, a spokesperson from the Satanic Temple released a statement to the media, and here's what they said. We're not trying to endorse Satan worship or criticize other religious organizations, but we want to offer an alternative to the Christian Good News Club. Now that's like Burger King saying we're not into promoting hamburgers, even though burger is in the name. (laughs) Several parents have protested and some even organized a prayer rally near the school asking God to intervene and defeat the club before it can get started. But as of today, Guilford County School Board has not yet rendered a verdict on whether they will give the club permission to meet it or not. The fact that they even have to deliberate over it tells you something. Last year, the New York Post carried this piece with the headline. Here's what it read. U.S. Priests, Exorcisms on the Rise. The article then relates in an interview with a Catholic priest from Washington, D.C., this gentleman pictured here, named Stephen Rossetti. He runs an exorcism ministry, and he says that his team performs 20 exorcisms a week. He published a book entitled The Diary of an American Exorcist, chronicling his 13 years of experience as an exorcist, and he claims, quote, the United States is demonically oppressed and facing a moral crisis. The number of exorcisms has grown exponentially in the past decade. Now, I don't agree with Catholic theology, but I certainly agree with that statement that the United States is demonically oppressed and we are in a moral crisis. Social media experts are noting that younger millennials and Gen Zers, that is those born from the year 2000 on, are now showing a growing interest in the occult. CNN, which is fake news probably 90% of the time, here's what they reported. Quote, occult gurus produce viral TikTok and YouTube videos that teach their viewers, listen to this, how to read tarot cards, 
cast spells, use crystals, and perform psychic rituals, including communicating with the spirits of the dead. This is why it is probably not a good idea for you, parent, to give your child a smartphone. The article went on to say, one influencer explained the allure of the occult was because, quote, it gives people a direct connection to spiritual power. But it doesn't say what kind of spiritual power. We know where it comes from. These troubling news bites highlight a spiritual divide in this nation and, yes, even world, that, listen to me, there are dark spiritual forces vying for hearts and minds. One of the most often neglected and misunderstood areas in the Christian life is spiritual warfare. What is spiritual warfare? That sounds like some kind of super religious term that you have to have a a doctorate degree in theology to understand. It's really not that complicated. I wrote a definition out this week. Here's my definition. Spiritual warfare refers to the cosmic conflict of Satan and his demonic forces against God's angelic hosts and the church. It is an invisible spiritual conflict that manifests in our visible physical reality in which Satan's goal is to deceive, divide, and destroy. A.W. Tozer, the great Christian writer, said it like this, For the Christian, this world is not a playground, but it is a battleground. We're not here to frolic, but to fight. C.S. Lewis noted insightfully in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that Christians usually fall into one unhealthy extreme or another when it comes to the subject of demonic activity. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest in them. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying it's wrong to say that it's antiquated to say there is a real devil and demons. And it's also wrong to be looking for a, a devil behind every bush. But it is right to be aware that we are in a spiritual conflict. And with the rampant spiritual chaos and moral decay in this country, we can see very easily how Satan's tactics are becoming bolder and more in your face. The enemy isn't just scheming in some dark corner behind the scenes now. He's out in broad daylight. He's out in your public schools. He's on the television screen. He's in the media that you digest. Uh, he's in places that you haven't seen before because he's getting bolder and more authority. In this message, I not only want to convince you of the reality of spiritual warfare, but I want to help equip you for the battle. We're going to get a healthy dose of reality because we need to realize the fight that we're in. I'm going to uncover some things this week that disturbed me. I don't do this to be some kind of shock rock preacher. I'm not trying to put fear in your heart. That's not what I'm about. But I am trying to highlight you to the fact that if we as a church and as a nation don't get a hold of this, we're going to be going off the cliff very soon. So number one, I want you to see this today. The enemy of spiritual warfare. The enemy. Now I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 6. If you'll drop down to verse 10. 
Paul finishes this incredible letter here with a note on spiritual warfare. He writes in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? If you would ask the average person on the street today, if Satan exists, they will most likely shake their head and say no. That is some antiquated idea that uh, the church invented during the Middle Ages to scare people into obedience or whatever reason they might give. And I say to that, perhaps the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. <laughs> and friend, you can't fight a spiritual battle if you don't believe there's a real enemy out there who hates your soul, he hates your church, and he wants to take your kids to hell. The Bible teaches that Satan is a real spiritual being. He was originally created as Lucifer. We read about that in Isaiah 14, Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel 28. He was created as an angel who chose to rebel against God. He deceived one-third of the angelic hosts and they fell with him. Those today are known as demons. But listen to the way Jesus referred to him in John 12 and verse 31. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. In other words, he's been given a a sphere of authority and influence. He's been allowed to run roughshod over humanity. Jesus called him also in John 8, 44, the father of lies. Paul claimed earlier on in this same epistle, chapter 2 and verse 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he calls him the God of this age who blinds the minds of people, keeping them from the light of the knowledge of of the gospel. So the Bible pictures him in several different animal-like metaphors as well. If you study your Bible, you'll notice, uh, especially in the New Testament, that he's described in several different ways. He's a serpent trying to deceive God's people. That goes back to Genesis 3. You can also see that image in Revelation 12. He is likened to a bird that swoops in to steal the seed of the gospel as it is sown on soil of the heart. That's in Matthew 13 and verse 4. He's shown to be a wolf to scatter God's flock. Jesus talks about that in John 10 and Matthew 10. Peter calls him a lion seeking about whom he may devour. And then in Revelation 12, he's also the dragon trying to destroy God's Son, trying to thwart the plan of a sovereign God. So here's what I want you to hear today, friend, that spiritual warfare is real. I experience it every time I stand before you to preach the Word of God. There is an enemy who wants to keep you distracted, wants to keep you deceived, wants to keep you from hearing the Word of God. Souls hang in the balance on a Sunday morning as the Word is preached. And when folk resist, it's the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of uh, of, of Satan fighting the Holy Spirit rather. When there's resistance in a service and it seems as if the heavens have turned to brass and it seems as if the music dies before it leaves our mouths and that the word falls flat, it's spiritual warfare. 
When you pray and it seems that God is a million miles away, when you open the Bible and it seems as if it's a foreign book, and it seems as if uh, you're being attacked on all sides by these strange things, ideas and temptations and adversity that comes into your life, friend, mark it down, it's spiritual warfare. It's, it's real if you are a child of God. So listen to this. My real enemy today is not the liberal left. My enemy today is not the drug pusher or the pornographer. My enemy is not the addict or the abortionist or the Muslim terrorist or the LBGD community. Those are not my enemies. My enemy is satanic in nature. Those that I mentioned earlier are victims in this spiritual struggle. They're blinded by the God of this age. They're held in chains. They're captive. Wretch is going to wretch. A sinner's going to live like a sinner because they belong to the enemy. So you have to look past a lot of the foolishness in the world and see that behind it all, there is an agenda. And there's a satanic puppeteer who's pulling the strings of power and influence and money and the flow of, of culture. And you have to be discerning to understand where a lot of the things coming into our country today is a satanic agenda to destroy this culture, destroy this country, and destroy your family. Paul says it right there. We're not warring against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, authorities, rulers in the heavenly places. It's an invisible war, friend. It's a cosmic conflict. Paul used an interesting word there in verse 11 that I want you to see. It is the word schemes or methods. In fact, the Greek word is methodia, is where we derive our English word today, method. This carries the idea that our enemy is systematic, he's strategic, he's deliberate, he's methodical, he's patient. He has traps, and tricks strongholds, weapons in this invisible war. And he employs them all with deafness and with prowess. And if you think I'm stronger than him, you've already fallen <laughs> to pride. Now, we're not surprised by this. We're alarmed that there's a satanic club vying to meet in an elementary school not far away. We're alarmed that occultism is on the rise. It raises our hairs when we see some of the stupidity that comes out of the mouths of our leaders. But we know where it comes from. And we know that as we are getting close to the end, to the return of Jesus Christ, our Bible tells us that we should expect the spiritual warfare to ramp up. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote in one of his books. He said, quote, As we move closer to the appearing of Christ for His church and the subsequent tribulation period, we should expect an increase in demonic activity all over the world. Bible prophecy, he says, predicts that spiritual warfare will intensify as God allows Satan to have a larger authority over humanity. And eventually, even a global empire led by the Antichrist he says, spiritual chaos is one sign telling us we are indeed living in the last days. Friend, if you doubt it, open your eyes, open your Bible, pay attention to the ideas coming across your screen. 
You don't have to look very hard. You don't have to have a theology degree. Spiritual warfare is in your face. I want to give you three schemes of Satan in this cosmic conflict that he's using right now. It's actually a lead up, a set up, as Dr. Jeremiah said, to the end times. Things that you're seeing now that you've never seen before in your life and you don't have a word for it, you don't have a label for it, it's new. But it's the same trick from the same old deceiver. Just packaged in a different way. First off, there is a scheme of deception. A scheme of deception. If you go to Jesus' Olivet Discourse, that's his prophetic sermon in Matthew 24 and 25. He warned that leading up to his return, there would be a surge in apostasy, that's falling away. There would be a surge in spiritual counterfeits and false teachers. Here's what he said. Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so that as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There is a scheme of deception afoot in the culture today. And you know where it's happening? Not on social media necessarily, although it's there. Not in the White House, although it is there. Not in the places where you would expect it, but right in the place where you think you ought to be the safest, and that's church. Jesus says, false prophets counterfeit teachers. And Satan's method of deception is always, listen to me, he always tried to get us to doubt God's word then we distort God's Word, and then eventually we just flat out deny God's Word. Look at the history of denominations. Isn't that how it has started? First they doubt the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture, and then they distort it and twist it to get it to say what they want it to say so that they can have their sin and eat their cake too. And then basically they become a dead church. By the end they even deny the Word of God. That's what Jesus tells us to look out for in Matthew 24 and it's the very same way that Satan operated in the garden when he deceived Adam and Eve first he got them to cast doubt on God's word did God really say then he was able to distort it he put a question mark where God put a period and then he denied it saying that the man and woman would not die go ahead and eat of that tree God's holding out on you you see deception works by doubt and then distortion, and then denial. Let me give you an example. Just this past week, there were the results of a nationwide survey released. The survey was done among a thousand pastors from various denominations across the country, and the survey revealed, look at the headline, study finds 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview. Only 37%. That means if you gave a regular average pastor a test on Bible knowledge and Bible worldview, most of them would fail. What are we doing in our churches? The research was done by Arizona Christian University, and what it shows, listen to this, is that most pastors either don't believe the Bible is sufficient to deal with the issues of the day, or that the Bible needs to be quote-unquote updated to conform to today's culture. 
George Barna, listen, the man who led the study, here's what he concluded. I'm quoting directly from him. Pastors no longer believe the Bible. It certainly seems that if America is going to experience a spiritual revival, that that awakening is needed just as desperately in our pulpits as it is in the pew. God help us! When did we get to the point where we thought that this wasn't enough? And look at what's happening in so many denominations around the the country. You go in, the church service is nothing more than a rock show and a TED talk. And you feel good and lifted up and you walk out and you're just as lost as you were when you entered. And that man does not open this book and preach to you an authoritative, thus saith the Lord. You fold up and you walk out and you find you a church and you find you a pastor that will preach to you the undiluted Word of God. You see, we think we're being loving We think that we're being compassionate. You think that we're helping people by accommodating them in their sin and massaging the Scriptures to get it to say what we want it to say to conform with the culture. But Jesus says, beware, there's false teachers out there. They'll lead you astray. And friend, I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm not here to scratch your ego. I'm not here to conform with the culture or be in step with the times. I'm here to open the Word of God and says. Here's what the book says. Here's what we need to do. And here's how we apply it. Friend, that's why the church is in such disarray as it is today. Because Satan has infiltrated into the pulpits. We've got quote unquote pastors. And I use that term loosely. Who don't believe in the the very book. That is the foundation of of our faith. Friend, if that's not deception, I don't know what is. God help us. There's some pastors who need to get born again. There's some pastors who need to meet the living Lord Jesus and repent of compromise. There's some churches that, man, God help us if we don't get back to the book. When you go into some of those services, you end up getting a pep talk. You end up getting a self-help suggestion. Nice, non-offensive talks infused with the spirit of the age. And it turns into entertaining goats rather than leading the sheep. Friend, as long as there's... I'm promising you this. As long as there's air in my lungs and strength in my body, as long as God gives me grace, you come here and I promise you I will preach to you the Word of God. Whether it's in season or out of season, whether it's popular or not, and I can almost guarantee you it won't be politically correct. But I don't have to stand before Joe Biden or MSN or CNN and give an account for my message one day. I'm living for the approval of one man. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave. He has the keys of death in Hades. And friend, that's the one who I am preaching for. Where's our pastors with that kind of backbone today? Who love their people enough to say, I love your soul. And I preach to you, not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Amen? Satan starts by getting us to doubt God's Word. And then it's a short step from there to denying God's Word. And it all starts in the pulpit. And when we abandon this, no wonder we got the madness in our culture. 
No wonder they're trying to convince our children that they get to choose whether they want to be a boy or a girl. No wonder we've got politicians and leaders, unelected officials, who when you ask them a very simple question, what is a woman, they can't even say it. So that's spiritual warfare, friend. So you see that there is a scheme of deception. Then notice this, there is a standardization of depravity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Satan wants us to get comfortable with evil and depravity and sin. We get desensitized to it. We accept it. We celebrate it. And we applaud it. I've often found it interesting that the little epistle of Jude has something to say about this very thing because it's the only book in the Bible that is devoted exclusively to this word apostasy. That's a word that means falling away from the truth. And it's right before the book of Revelation. And in many ways, Jude serves as a vestibule or a foyer into Revelation. And it reveals a lot of what the church is going to be like just prior to the last days. Listen to what Jude warned of. A growing acceptance of immorality, verse 4 in Jude. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Watch this. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. An age of anything goes. Oh, you just love God. He'll wake at your sin. He is a God of grace after all they say. And, and he, he loves you and He won't offend you or do anything to change your life. They deny, they say, Jude 4 says, not only our Master, but our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of this. My stomach turned a few weeks ago when I saw a clip from a student-led service at Duke Divinity School. On March 22nd, this was this year, Duke hosted a, quote, gay pride worship service in which one of the female leaders opened up with a prayer calling God, quote-unquote, the queer one. Again, I'm not making that up. It's right out there for everybody to see. She then referred to Christ as, quote, the strange one, the fabulous one, gender fluid and ever becoming. My God, what is happening in our church? This is Duke, quote-unquote, divinity school. My gosh, if their goal was to fit as many blasphemies into a single prayer, I think they made the Guinness Book of World Records on that one. And this is how satanic warfare works. Listen, sin starts out as subtle. And then over time, it begins to gain acceptance. Then we embrace it, and then finally it's celebrated and applauded, and now we have a whole month coming up dedicated to all this foolishness where you can't even go to Target, and you're affronted with this godless lifestyle. And our culture says, if you don't love this, accept this, and teach this to your kids, you hate us. My God, look at how things have been flipped around. You say, Pastor, why are you angry? I'm not angry, I'm passionate. Because i got three precious little ones over here who are growing up in this sin-sick and backward world. And I have to explain to them, Daddy, why does that man look like a woman? Daddy, why are those two men kissing? 
And yet we've just invited it with open arms into our culture. We put it on the White House, paraded it around, celebrated it, applauded it. And God says, in the end times, that which is good will be called evil and that which is evil will be called good. And we're so backward, twisted and turned around now. We don't know up from down, left from right. And I think about what kind of world are my kids going to grow up in? You see, this is spiritual warfare, friends. And the enemy ain't playing games anymore. And the culture's not afraid to say the quiet part out loud. They, wanna, they don't care if they offend everybody out there but God. It's open game. Offend everybody. My goodness. And see, once sin is normalized and standardized, the next step is to refashion God according to our own evil desires. The queer one, as she called him. You get to the point where you just take God and you fashion out of him not what the holy and righteous God that he's presented in Scripture, but you make an idol out of him that is comfortable with your own sinful lifestyle. And yet people applaud it and they celebrate it and they don't know that they're splitting hell wide open one day unless the scales from their eyes are lifted. I'm serious, friend. The battle for your grandbabies and your children is hotter than ever before. And this isn't the time to be wishy-washy. I don't know what I believe and I'm just kind of jello theology and I just go along with it. Hey, parents, you better get a hold of your children. Better teach them the Word of God. Better get them in the house of God and show them the blessed truth. Mark Hitchcock wrote this, The Coming Apostasy. He said, quote, Satan is the avowed enemy of traditional natural marriage and the home. There's no doubt that changing views on homosexual behavior is Satan's overt strategy to pervert, repurpose, and reinvent the human identity. The devil's end game, he said, is to destroy every trace of conscience found in humanity. Boy, isn't that true. The stunning pace with which the LBGT agenda has gained approval can only be explained in supernatural terms. Something beyond human forces is energizing this issue and corrupting the church at warp speed. And I'm telling you, do we realize the battle we're in? This ain't Kansas anymore. A standardization of depravity, a scheme of deception, and then look at this, a system of domination. Do you know ultimately what Satan wants to do? He wants to control you. He wants to dominate you. He wants to oppress you. He wants to enslave you. And the Apostle John informs us that, listen to this, in 1 John 4, 1-3, that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in our world. Here's what it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, watch this, is not from God. And here it is. This is the Spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. What is the Spirit of Antichrist? Well, not only does it deny Jesus' lordship, 
But it is ultimately a spirit that seeks to oppress and dominate people. You see, because if I go to the back of my Bible in Revelation 13, I can read about the agenda of the Antichrist, or as John calls him, the beast. See, during the tribulation period, the last seven years of human history, the Bible says that the world will be controlled by Satan's CEO, a man known as the Antichrist. And he will demand that people will worship him if they refuse to bow their knee and accept his mark, then they will be paralyzed financially and face death. That's where the world is headed eventually. And boy, aren't we seeing the dress rehearsal now and all the restrictions and all the things where the government wants to intrude in your speech and in your freedom and in your life and tell you uh, what you can say and what you can think and, and who you should vote for and where, how you should spend your money. That's all the spirit of the Antichrist that's moving our world toward the end. We've seen it at work in despots through history. Tyrants like Hitler and Stalin and Saddam. They all had that spirit of Antichrist in them to dominate and oppress people. But the Bible says that the final world dictator will have something that no other leader ever has had in his fingertips, and that is the technology to oversee and manipulate and control people's lives. You know how it begins? This right here. This isn't a message against using your smartphone, but what I'm saying is the technology that is here is the technology that is being used to train your mind to be oppressed and to train your life to be dependent on a little screen that tells you everything. You see, the technology to achieve the world empire and to dominate is already in development right now. I'm not talking about science fiction stuff that's years away. I'm talking about right now. I listened to a man talk this week he was an Israeli. His name is Yuval Noah Harari. Don't ask me to pronounce that. <laughs> he's a best-selling Israeli author. He's a lecturer. He's an atheist. He's a homosexual. And he's a globalist. In case you are wondering what kind of company this man keeps, he's the right-hand man of Klaus Schwab, who leads up the World Economic Forum and Schwab is the prime architect of the global reset. We hear a lot about that today. Which is basically global socialism and techno-tyranny. That's where they want the world to go. Last year, Yuval Noah Harari went on 60 Minutes and he gave an interview to Anderson Cooper about where he and his friends see the world going. I'm going to read for you a direct quote from him. He said, Quote, COVID was critical because this is what legitimized people's acceptance of total biometric surveillance. They're not even hiding the agenda anymore, folks. They're telling you now, this is what we did and what we're going to do. He said, by using smartphones and social media, corporations and tech companies have collected data on where we go, who we meet, and what movies we watch. But the next phase in the surveillance is going under our skin. Where did you read that? We are now developing divine powers and soon we will be upgrading humans with either genetic engineering or by connecting our brains to implantable computers. Mr. Musk, with his Neuralink, you heard about this? 
What this means, he says, is that future humans will be quote-unquote hackable. Eventually, within 10, 20, 30 years, such algorithms could tell you what to study at college, where to work, whom to marry, and even whom to vote for. The danger is if all this data is concentrated in one place, that's the recipe for dictatorship. Friend, he hasn't read Revelation 13, but I have. That's the game plan. That's the end game. It's all going there. There's a spirit of Antichrist in our world to dominate you and me. And what we are witnessing right now is the setup for the tribulation period and the beast system and all that the Bible predicts. And what is driving it all? It's all spiritual warfare. It's all a satanic system, a world system. That he's pulling the strings and he's moving people around. He's influencing thoughts. And friend, we're right in the middle of it. And so let's put it all together. Satan is working overtime spreading deception and doubt. Because people are deceived about even the most basic moral issues of life like morality and sexuality. Society is crumbling. And when people are deceived and cultures are in disarray, it will be easier for a strong man to arise to power and say, I can fix your problems. I can get the price of gas affordable. I can fix the schools. I can get government in control. I can end war. All you got to do is put this thing under your skin. Friend, that's where it's going. And they're telling us now, we're already working on it. You know, if I was on the fence today about where I stood with Jesus Christ, I'd run and baseball slide to this altar as fast as I could get here. What do we do? Can I have a couple more minutes? Let, let me have a couple more minutes. I want you to see, number two, the equipment of spiritual warfare. How do we battle against all this? You say, preacher, I, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Feels like I've been beat down and I have no answers. Oh, but friend, there's such good counsel from the Word of God right here on this very thing. God has equipped you and me through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to live in times like this and to not just survive but to be victorious. Verse 14, Ephesians 6, look at what it says here. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul uses the Roman soldier as a model here, and he explains how we can be victorious. He says in this passage, he says, stand. Now in Paul's day, did you know that a Roman soldier didn't wear armor on his back? You know why? Because they were never expected to retreat or run from the fray of battle. We're not to give one inch. We're not to yield in any way to our attacking foe. I'm equipped in such a way that I don't have to retreat from the wiles of the enemy. I can stand strong in the Word of God and the power of His Son and in the might of His Spirit and I can lead my life and lead my wife and my family in a way that honors God and I don't have to bow or cave to the culture. I can stand strong. And the same is true for you as well. 
The picture here in this passage is not somebody who's on the offensive, but it's somebody who's on the defensive. We're just defending the territory that has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. And we're to stand for whatever our commander-in-chief tells us to, restraining the advance of evil. You know the reason why the world hasn't gone completely sideways and why the country hasn't completely collapsed yet? It's because there's still enough salt and light left. There's still enough God-fearing, Bible-believing people. There's still a remnant of people in this country who live for God, are filled by the Holy Spirit, who love their country, and who go out every day and bust their hump to make a living, and they will not bend. Now notice this. In our strength, we're powerless, but with the armor of God, we can resist. And Paul gives six pieces of spiritual armor. There's five defensive and one offensive. And the way that the uh, battle is won is the, we equip ourselves with the armor of God. You say, well, how do I do that? This is spiritual, not physical, remember? Well, we prepare ourselves. We put on the armor prayerfully. We put on the armor through knowing the Word of God, studying the Word of God, preparing our minds, preparing our hearts. So let's go through each one of these. Let me show you what this means. I'm going to break it down very quickly. The belt of truth. Why do we need that? Because our enemy traffics in lies. And we need to defend against him by basing our life in the truth of Scripture. Not what your phone tells you to believe. Not what CNN tells you to believe. But what the Word of God says about the cosmic conflict that we are in. Jesus said in John 17, Thy Word is truth. He said in John 10, 35, The Word is unbreakable. If I base my life on the truth of the Word of God, I'm putting on that belt of truth. He says, then put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? That's a realization that my self-worth is not based on my goodness, but on His goodness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Him I'm justified, I'm forgiven, I'm made holy. It's not about what I do, it's about what He's done. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. The gospel shoes of peace. What does that mean? That my steps are ordered by the Lord. And before I get up that day, I ask, God, I don't know where you're going to lead me. God, I don't know how you're going to use me. But guide my feet where you would have me to go. And everywhere that I go, I'm taking the hope of Jesus Christ within me. And I'm taking the gospel to share with anybody who needs it. Blessed are the feet of those who go to preach good news. Romans 10, 15 says. He says, take up the shield of faith. What is that? That means that I believe the Word of God and the promises of God enough to act on it. I believe that God is true, that His Word is true, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, no matter if I feel like a Christian that day or not, I take up my faith and it goes with me throughout the day. 1 John 5, 4, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And like Joshua and David, I go out and I do battle. But you know what? I don't have to worry about the outcome of the battle. God is fighting my battles for me. God is moving pieces that I can't move. God is getting mountains out of the way. God is ordering my steps. God is going ahead of me into my tomorrow and providing provision for that day's battle. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret because He's for me. 
The helmet of salvation, what does that mean? I put that on and my mind is focused on the Lord. I know that today might be the day that He comes back. I'm allowing God to protect my thought life. I'm allowing Him to daily renew me and transform me in my mind so that my worldview is correct. And then the sword of the Spirit, just as Jesus defeated the temptation of Satan in the wilderness by quoting the Scriptures, I defeat the enemy when he comes to me and he attacks my character and he tries to deceive me to get into addiction or into pornography or he tries to plant an idea in my mind that isn't comporting with the Word of God. I rebuke him by the power of God's Word. And when he reminds me of my past, I remind him of his future. Satan, you've got no hold on me. You've got no authority in my life. Get behind me. You can't have my kids. You can't have my family. You can't have my church and my school. I'm going out armed up to do battle against an invisible foe. But my Jesus has already promised victory. And Satan, you better just go ahead and find somebody else that you can bother today. Because you ain't getting this preacher down today. You ain't taking me down today. I've got victory. Victory, and I'm not about to give it up. It's easy to say that on Sunday morning. Tomorrow morning, when your feet hit the floor, He's going to be gunning for you. Spiritual warfare is an ongoing struggle because Satan never takes a day off. Even though we fight our battles, friends, we do so from the knowledge that the outcome of the war has already been decided. Praise God, I don't have to earn my salvation. Praise God, I don't have to impress Him. Praise God, He's already defeated. And I fight from that victory. And in Christ, we can hold our own. I don't have to be a victim. I'm a victor. I don't have to bow down to the culture. I don't have to compromise. I don't have to live like everybody else and like everything that everybody else does. I don't have to fit into this world because I'm not made to. I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God, blood-bought by the Son of God, and bound one day for heaven and glory. I'm going to finish with this. On August 9, 2012, Sergeant Joseph Morrissey was on patrol in Afghanistan. He exited a Humvee to do a routine check on some roadside fences placed there by Army engineers. That's when a single 7.62 millimeter round struck him in the chest. A sniper fired from a protected position behind a stone wall just 30 meters away. Morrissey would have been dead had he not made a critical decision that morning before leaving his barracks. Before his patrol left that day, Sergeant Morrissey strapped on a bulky and cumbersome body armor issued to his platoon just one day earlier. After his tour of duty, Morrissey was given a leave of absence. He and his wife Nikki attended a ceremony in Virginia at the factory where the body armor that saved his life was manufactured. And there's the article that reported this. During the presentation, the sergeant was given a plaque with the body armor that saved his life. The lead bullet was still lodged in the protective plate. If y'all move forward one slide, you can see where the bullet is still there. Morrissey remarked at the ceremony, it's amazing how much my life has changed in the last year. 
And to think it wouldn't have been possible without this piece of equipment. He said, since the day I got shot, I was married and now I have a child on the way. When Mrs. Morrissey was asked for her thoughts, she indicated that the armor plate will now be displayed prominently in their house. She says it's going to be hung up somewhere where it's visible every day as a reminder of how precious life is. Are you wearing your armor, friend? Are you going out every day being victimized in a battle? Outside these doors, listen to me, it's a war zone. And you can't leave home without the armor in Ephesians 6. Pray it on every day. Cover your wife, husband. Wife, cover your husband. Cover your children and your grandbabies. And do spiritual warfare the way God has said that we can and be victorious. And friend, you may not even be able to do that today because you don't belong to the Lord. You see, you've got to be in the Lord's army before you can put the armor on. And if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior today, as I said, I would make a beeline to this altar. And friend, I'd love to meet you today and pray with you. Our musicians are coming. And as we get ready for this time of invitation, if you need to respond in any way today to this message, come and find that He's a great God and an amazing Savior.